Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And I'll just get out of the way. Hey, guys. <laughs> we haven't had you do an impersonation lately, but <laughs> that's the signal for everybody. Alex is on vacation, so he's not with us today. On vacation on a tropical island like a monster. Yeah, terrible person. Instagramming it in Ugh, mean ways. Um, I, I wanted to mention briefly up top that I'm, I'm pretty happy that I, um, you know, I... I hoodwinked you into uh, letting me write about Game of Thrones this week. I love how you call it hoodwinked when <laughs> you mentioned, like, the you said Game of, and I was like, write it. Sounds good. Great. I, re- I reached out to a bunch of different trademark lawyers to, like, talk about the, you know, how, because Game of Thrones is, like, a very granular trademark owner. Sure. Like, they file, they try to register trademarks on, like, every individual character name and Which like makes all sense. sorts it's of such a lucrative franchise completely yeah. but i've been reaching out to the to different people and they're like you get on the phone with them and they're like so i mean who do you think's gonna die this weekend <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, i like that they're I'm like, all speculating the way we all are to be clear i i, I would love to hear more of your takes but i <laughs> but i, I can't really I, include I, that yeah, in my story i need you to talk more about the trademark end of things <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, yeah, uh, so pretty good show today. Yeah, um, this is going to be one of my favorites, I'm sure, because it's covering a lot of ground I love. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court more than once. Yep. Um, we're going to have Vingarieri, one of our great guests, to talk about a really important case that could expand what's covered under federal discrimination laws. Yep. So that'll be interesting. And we've got a lot of immigration in this show. A lot of immigration, starting up with a uh, <laughs> late breaking news today. Um so uh, we talked a couple episodes ago about the idea of um, whether federal immigration agents arresting people at courthouses is uh, a good thing. Right. Um, and that storyline has sort of escalated today. Uh, on Thursday, a, a sitting judge in Massachusetts was uh, indicted on obstruction of justice charges on, on the idea that she helped a person who was going to be detained in her courtroom, she helped him uh, evade an ICE agent. So um, it's it's already the state has already come out and said some really strong things in response to this. So it's a it's it's a big situation. This is such an interesting clash between the idea of when ICE can detain someone in and around a courthouse versus it potentially disrupting other court proceedings and how judges are reacting. Right. It's a very dramatic uh, example is. of it. So can you tell us more about the incident? What exactly happened here? Right. So uh, I'll sort of lay down what federal prosecutors say this judge did. Um, her name is Shelley Richmond Joseph. She's a district court judge in um, Massachusetts state court. She was presiding over a hearing on drug charges against an undocumented immigrant. And there was a plainclothes ICE officer in the courtroom uh, there to execute this detainment order against the 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 person who was who was being charged in court. Um, Joseph, the judge, asked the ICE agent to leave the courtroom. Uh, and when the hearing began, an audio recording of of the courtroom captured the judge, uh, the defense attorney, and the prosecutor talking about the fact that there had been this ICE agent there and, right. and um, the the order to detain the defendant. They then turned the recorder off saying... And the judge actually asked like, said, like, Can we go off. off the record for, yeah. and for about a minute? Um, and then they turn it back on and basically Joseph said that she was going to release the defendant. Um, the court clerk reminded her that the ICE agent was in the court building and... Um, 
And Joseph responded, that's fine. I'm not going to allow them to come in here, but he's been released on this. So the indictment that uh, came out today says that another person, the court officer, uh-huh. um, then escorted the defendant, the defense attorney, and an interpreter downstairs to the lockup area in the courthouse and used his security card to open the back door and let the guy leave. Right. Meanwhile, the ICE agent is waiting out at the front of the building, right? Exactly. So um, so clearly ICE was not happy about this, but... Um, they 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 went a step further than you know an administrative process or complaining about this um today on thursday they were both joseph uh the judge and um wesley mcgregor who was the court officer uh-huh. who escorted the guy down they were both indicted on conspiracy to obstruct justice obstruction of justice obstruction of a federal court proceeding and perjury wow serious charges yeah so the u.s attorney from massachusetts said it was a question of the rule of law um the quote we cannot pick and choose the federal laws we follow or use our personal views to justify violating the law. Well, before this even happened, um, we had talked on Pro Se and many people have ha- been having the discussion about how far ICE can go in and around courts and right. judges around the country. Many of them have been pushing back. They maybe haven't done the exact things that are alleged here, yeah. but a lot of them have spoken out about it. So I imagine there's a lot of fervor. Right. So uh, the Massachusetts Attorney General... Uh, the ACLU quickly issued a statement saying that this was a politically motivated prosecution. Um, yeah. But more importantly, the Massachusetts Attorney General, um, uh, Maura Healey, quickly came out with a, a scathing statement about it, calling it, uh, quote, a radical and politically motivated attack on our state and the independence of our courts. Um, she said it could have been handled via an administrative complaint through the court yeah. system. Um, and she said she was deeply disappointed in the U.S. attorney for, quote, his misuse of prosecutorial resources and the chilling effect his action will have. Um, the, the the power quote from her statement was, it is a bedrock principle of our constitutional system that federal prosecutors should not recklessly interfere with the operation of state courts and their administration of justice. So, yeah, you're getting a real sense from that quote of the the true clash at stake here where judges and courts take their independence very seriously very seriously and you you know it's this is part of a bigger story i mentioned in in both sort of specific ways and in general ways um i I mentioned up top the that we had covered previously this the the uptick in arrests that are happening at courthouses and um critics say that's a big problem that it scares undocumented people away from from using the justice system, both in terms of like showing up for their own hearings and things like that, but also reporting crimes. Yeah, or and being witnesses on the stand. And exactly, like cooperating that. in investigations. Yeah. It really, it if it, it really is, people say it can really hinder the way that the the system is supposed to function. Um, so states that like Massachusetts that have a more uh, progressive approach to immigration, they have been taking steps to push back on these arrests. Um, in January, New York unveiled a, a new rule that, that completely just bans these kind of arrests from happening right. on state court property. Um, ICE has come out sh- strongly against that policy. Um, everyone should go to Law 360 and read. Um, Natalie Rodriguez, one of our reporters, wrote a really great story about the New York policy and how it might be a blueprint for other states that want to adopt similar rules. And to me, this feels like almost... Um 
just a really specific example that reminds me of the debate about sanctuary cities. Yeah, it's part- So this is a lot of that same feeling where the argument for those so-called sanctuary cities is that you want people to cooperate with law enforcement and it makes your overall city safer if right. you're not turning people over to federal immigration agents. Um, obviously, the federal government doesn't see it that way, especially the Trump administration. Then they say, no, if you violate an immigration law, you shouldn't be shielded in any way. Um, and this is just the courthouse version of that debate. Exactly. It's part of a it's part of a much bigger, you know, it's it's like I think I said dramatic before. It's a very dramatic example of a big tension that we've been following over the last two years. So for our second story, I want to stay in the realm of talking about immigration because we had another big development this week. Yep. And this one's at the high court. Um, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case about the upcoming census. The Trump administration wants to ask people if they're U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. Critics say that's a really bad idea because it'll scare immigrants and Hispanics and it'll really depress the count of yeah. the census. That's a big deal because the census is all about money and power. Mm-hmm. It determines how states get billions with a B of, of federal dollars. For, for a long time, too, for, for 10, 10 years. years. right? And then on top of that, the census determines our congressional representation. So it could really change how many people are in the House for each state. right? And the depressed turnout would probably impact Democratic areas the most. Mm-hmm. So high stakes in this one. Yeah, it's like, like many things in the last few years, we've seen the the political world playing out in the, in the courthouse. Definitely. Um, but so, okay, let's reset a little bit. Um, wh- how, how did this come about? I mean, how did, did we get into a situation where we're adding this question into the census? Yeah. So, uh, commerce secretary Wilbur Ross, he's in charge of the census bureau. He announced the addition of the question about a year ago. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been asked of every household since the 1950 census. It's been asked in some uh, smaller ways for like about 20% of the population, but yeah. it hasn't been a broad question in years. Ross said it was really important to do because the Department of Justice wants that data to better enforce federal voting rights laws. So right. that was his rationale behind it. But but that rationale, I assume, did not uh, assuage the concerns of... That was heavily challenged in court, as many of these controversial things are. I feel like we're always talking about this, especially when immigration comes up, uh, the administration acts, and immediately a bunch of lawsuits ensue. Right. We had three big ones in this case, and it was states that um, didn't want this to happen and some civil rights groups. Mm-hmm. And they said that it the adding of this question violated a bunch of procedural grounds and transparency things were at play. Right. But it all basically boils down to this. They say Ross's motivation for adding that question wasn't what he said it was, Uh that it was actually for the intent of depressing Democratic um, representation and intentionally getting an undercount. Right. The goal was actually the thing that we were talking about before. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ross really argued in these court cases that the Department of Justice asked for this change and he didn't um, have any other recourse but to follow along with that. And this was the best way to give them the data they needed. But... The people challenging it and several lower courts all said, no, no, he had concocted this as an after the fact rationale that the White House had asked him to add the question. Steve Bannon had been involved in the conversations and that's how it got included. 
the three lower courts agreed with the states challenging this. Mm-hmm. They put out some pretty scathing um, um, rulings saying that Ross was not telling the truth about what was going on. And then the whole thing got fast-tracked straight to the Supreme Court because time's of the essence here. We've got to figure this out before the census forms have to be printed. Right. I mean, it's 2019. The, the, yeah, the we're getting really close. Sneaking up on us. So um, that gets us up to where we are this week, which was oral arguments before the justices, always the, sort of the dramatic moment in any Supreme Court case. We had some really great coverage. Uh, our immigration beat reporter, Nicole Norea, wrote a really great story about it. Walk us through wh- how, how those arguments went. Yeah, uh, things are not looking good for the states challenging the question. The justices seem divided straight down party lines. So mm-hmm. that would be 5-4 in favor of the conservative stance here that the question could be included. Right. The conservatives seemed really skeptical that Ross violated any administrative law um, when he allegedly ignored expert advice about the question. And the argument had been that even people within the census department had said there are other ways to get this data. And the justices asked a bunch of questions about whether or not Ross disagreeing with them would be, quote, arbitrary and capricious. That's, you know, a typical standard that you apply to this kind of stuff. And they seem to be leaning toward the side of saying that Ross had the discretion here. So obviously the four liberals were lined up the other way. What 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 kind of questions were they asking? So Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer all asked why Ross decided to include the question if he knew his own agency was saying that the statistical response rates would go down and that there were other ways to get this data. So they really pushed on that button of yeah. like, why was your judgment so different? And I think what they were getting at is what these lower courts had found, that this was a post facto justification for what Ross wanted to do, that this was coming from a White House directive. They were pushing on that point. And then they, uh, Kagan got really into this and saying that the record shows that Ross didn't really have a good reason. And she said that Ross could deviate from what department officials recommend, but, and here's the quote, the secretary needs reasons to do that. And I searched the record and I don't see any reason. Yeah. But it sounds like uh, it sounds like this is going to going to come down five four. It does. It right. really. I mean, I know that it's a little bit of a fool's errand to fully say like we know the answer now because it's the Supreme Court. But given the way the oral arguments went, it really seems like it is going to be a five four decision, and um, we're going to get this by the end of the term. And we really need to because the Census Bureau has said they have a deadline of July first to start printing all the forms and carrying on with the twenty twenty census. So we're going to find out really soon. this week, the Supreme Court said it would hear a case that will decide whether gay and transgender workers are protected under federal discrimination law. That's an open question that's left courts deeply divided, and what justices decide could be a potential landmark ruling on civil rights. Here to discuss the case is our employment law reporter, Vin Guerreri. Welcome back to the show, Vin. What's happening, pro se people? The the many, the many, many time guest. That's right. And we debated about what to even have been on the show for this week because so much is happening in the employment beat. But this one's one that I think we just can't pass up talking about. Um, Can can you sort of orient everybody in the conversation before we get in the specifics of the case? Let's talk about Title VII. Tell us what that law is all about. 
Title VII protects against workplace discrimination on a couple of different bases. So if, for example, um, you have an African-American worker, they're protected based on race. You can be protected based on religion, uh, national origin, some other different areas. The three cases that the Supreme Court took up this week deal specifically with Title VII's ban on discrimination based on sex. Mm-hmm. And... The key dispute here is what sex means, what encompasses sex. Right. So the three cases, uh, two were brought by uh, homosexual workers and one was brought by a transgender worker. Mm-hmm. So the dispute here is does sex encompass a person's sexual orientation and does it encompass their gender identity? Right. The law is very clear that, that, it, that, that gender is a protected thing under this law. The question is whether or not that word encompasses those other uh, types of, yeah. Are they separate categories? Right. Or do they both get rolled into just the general umbrella of sex discrimination? Right. And uh, courts have very much disagreed about the answer to that question. Can you kind of give us a little bit of the lay of the land here? Right, sure. So a lot of courts have had longstanding precedents that basically it's just biological sex. that. Right. Sex discrimination encompasses discrimination based on whether you're a man, whether you're a woman. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I um, am working at a job as a woman and I don't get a promotion, but a less qualified man is promoted, then I potentially would have a claim. You can sue for sex discrimination. Yep. But other courts have said it's a it's a more complicated question than that, right? More recently. So the first court that said that sex discrimination also included sexual orientation was the Seventh Circuit about two years ago. And how did they decide that? Like, how did they decide to give it a broad interpretation? The EEOC has been pushing it for a few years. Um, That's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Correct. So they are the agency that enforces Title VII, Mm -hmm. and they can sue on behalf of employees who bring any sort of discrimination claim or harassment or retaliation and whatnot. So a couple of years ago, 2015, they started... They adopted the idea that sex orientation is sex discrimination, Mm -hmm. that they're one and the same. A couple of years before that, they also uh, said something similar as far as gender identity. So from the EEOC's point of view, there's no distinguishing between those three things. They're all all rolled into one package. What sort of just, you know, for the... What in in a big picture sense, what's sort of the argument for why for why gender should cover transgender or sexual orientation? Okay, from the EEOC's point of view, they've argued that it's basically just the same thing. If, for example, um, if an employer fires someone based on their sexual orientation, mm-hmm. they're taking their sex into account. Right, they're considering it. So the common example that's used a lot is. If uh, if Tim marries Joe and Jenny marries Joe, well, if an employer fires Tim because of the person that he married but doesn't fire Jenny because of the person that she married, then why is that not sex discrimination? Right. Because the employer is taking both the individuals, uh, both the worker's sex yeah. into account and also taking – their spouse's sex and right. It's a very effective analogy. It makes it easy to understand. Yeah, that's really helpful as we talk about this. And also, I just always like to say in these conversations, I think a lot of listeners maybe didn't even know this wasn't already protected yeah. by our federal laws. And I think there's some confusion because various states and localities separately protect for um, gender identity and um, sexual orientation mm-hmm. in their 
more local laws about this. Yeah, I think that's part of where the confusion comes yeah. from because depending on what city you're in, it could change what the protections are. If I'm in New York City, the protections are different than if I'm in uh, even, well, now New Jersey has it as well, but uh, certain other nearby yeah, states. Yeah, it could just be across a, across a river, right? Right. And it could literally be a town over or across a, uh, uh, from one city to another, one state to another. And it's very easy to get confused. So now we find ourselves at the Supreme Court, and I think you alluded earlier, it's um, a trio of cases here. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the questions they're going to answer? Is it all just the same basic question here? So two of the cases, uh, they're all very straightforward questions, interestingly. So there's not really a lot of room for the court to avoid them if they if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. That's what makes this so exciting. It really could be like blockbuster answers here because they can't wiggle around it in some narrow ruling. But you tell us it. why. Correct. Yeah. Um, so two of them are going to be heard in tandem and very, like I said, very straightforward. Is sexual orientation covered under Title VII? Right. right. Is it covered under Title VII sex bias, mm-hmm. existing sex bias statute? Um, the other one is a little bit more nuanced, but not really that much so. It's whether Title VII covers... Uh, employees and protects them based on their either their transgender status uh-huh. or whether it protects them based on uh, what's called a sex stereotyping legal theory, which is basically... Is that the idea of like when a um, someone who's born a uh, woman doesn't present in the way that's expected in the workplace? Yeah, even simpler than that. If I fire a man who shows up to work yep. because right. his fingernails are painted, which is generally perceived to be a feminine... A feminine presentation, right? Right. Um, that could be under sex stereotyping. Okay. That could be an example of discrimination because I'm taking an action against you based on what I think are the traditional expectations of a man versus a woman. So, for the employment lawyers, they want to get answers. It's a question that's split circuit courts. But you know, for for a lay listener, could you sort of um, you know explain why this is such a big deal? I mean, th- this this case when the court took it this week it it really made headlines um why is it that it's a big one to watch going forward sure it's uh for a couple of reasons actually so the most obvious one is that it's obviously a big civil rights issue Mm -hmm. so symbolically it's an important case just for the message that it sends as far as discrimination whether it be in the workplace and i mean you have seen some headlines that um talk about the problem of um, the supreme court said that same-sex marriage was lawful, but your employer could fire you the day after your wedding yeah, under yeah. the current legal landscape. And that's probably going to be a point that a lot of observers who aren't necessarily in the legal world pick up on right. along the way. Um, but also it gives, uh, in a practical sense, it gives workers more access to federal courts that they might not otherwise have right. if they're if they're victims of or they allege to be victims of sex orientation discrimination. Meaning even if you're in a state like we alluded to earlier where maybe you have some of these protections already, the extension of federal law to it is is still a big a big deal. Sure, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And also the extension of workplace discrimination law with other forms of other types of discrimination laws. So, for example, if you have a public accommodations law that mm-hmm. has sex discrimination elements in it, then it's not really a stretch for a enterprising attorney to argue, okay, well, the Supreme Court said that under federal workplace discrimination laws, sexual orientation, gender identity are covered. Why shouldn't it also be covered under public accommodation laws or right. Title right. or Title IX? So or, it's like pushing that frontier forward. Correct. 
So it could it could spread, even though it's an employment case that the Supreme Court is going to be ruling on. Yeah, it could actually kind of go beyond those parameters a little bit and get into other areas of the law that maybe aren't subject to these particular cases. So stand by, everybody. I think the 2019 term already has maybe a big blockbuster case on the horizon. Thanks for coming on, Ben. No problem. Anytime. with something offbeat and I want to talk about some lawsuits filed by exotic dancers. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty regularly we get these suits where they say clubs are treating them as independent contractors instead of employees yeah. and so therefore they're paying them less in wages and not following all the federal labor laws, that right. kind of stuff. The one I want to talk about is weird because it brings up a really unique defense to this kind of lawsuit. Okay, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm... <laughs> I, I I feel the caution in talking about exotic <laughs> dancers, where you're like, I don't want to say the wrong thing to my boss here in this conversation. Um, but here's what what one Florida strip club is saying. Mm-hmm. It's called Club Pink Champagne and Showgirls. Great. Yep. Great. Great name. It's asking a district court to toss a suit filed by a woman named Kia Montgomery because they say Kia was never a dancer at the club at all. Okay. And instead, she was quote. An admittedly drunk and repeatedly violent customer. <laughs> I really am telling this whole story just for that yeah. one quote. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. So, did, we, did she work there? What, uh, uh, in dispute, Bill Donahue. Uh, who knows? <laughs> we just. Did. Yeah. So here's here's the sort of more of the facts mm-hmm. here. According to the club, she never danced there at all, and club management instead had asked her to leave the premises on. Two separate occasions when she was there, just as, and here's what they call it, an unwelcomed customer. This is good. I have a, I had a friend in college who spent so much time at one of the bars that eventually he just, they started paying him to go deliver food. And it's just like. So he converted from customer to employee. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I think Some it's a similar, similar situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the club says that this woman, Kia Montgomery, didn't offer any testimony or any documents to prove that she worked there. Mm-hmm. She had no pay stubs or anything like that. They say that she claimed she was employed at the club for nearly two years, but that she was actually a criminal fugitive from Pennsylvania. And <laughs> they like Mad Libs. they allege that she was in Pennsylvania court posting bond and some other charges. Right. At a time when she claimed to be working at Club Pink, which is again to remind everybody, that's in Florida. Right. So they say she was in a different state. This is amazing because it's a situation. Like I, I love the idea of of someone who doesn't actually work at a business just being swept up as like a plaintiff in a lawsuit as an employee. Yeah, <laughs> but, and and figuring out to do that is very like unusual. how would you right? You're, like either way, yeah. Ugh. Well, it's not a hundred percent clear who's telling the truth here. Oh though, no way! Obviously, <laughs> um, so the club earlier had tried to get this woman and her attorney sanctioned for bringing what they call a, a cookie cutter lawsuit. Sure. And they say it's obviously based on false claims that she worked at the club, all of that. Yeah. Um, it just goes to show how prevalent these lawsuits have become. Um, a magistrate judge denied that request, said there was enough evidence to proceed. So. We'll have to we'll have to see how that plays out about whether or not she's uh, some kind of grifter that's figured out a legal <laughs> game, or if this is actually just an aggrieved employee who's getting a really strident pushback about her lawsuit.
that'll wrap up today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill, and helping me hold it down while Alex is gone. It has been an absolute pleasure. That doesn't feel very sincere, but we're going to end the show anyway. <laughs> and I also want to thank our producers, Keller Moncano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Fingerary, and contributing reporters, Nicole Norea, Braden Campbell, and Aaron Leibowitz. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. Go ahead and hit subscribe wherever you're listening to the show and leave us a written review. It helps others find Pro Se. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've talked about, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week.